Welcome to Old Books of Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, but uh, very nearly a Victorianist. I love Victorian novels and decided not to study them in grad school, but they occupy a special space in my heart. And before I get into um, my interview with Gina, which was so delightful, I wanted to alert you to something new that I am trying. I have a Substack newsletter, which many of you subscribe to, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. You can find it at gracehammond.substack.com. And the new part of that is that um, I'm adding a book club component onto it. That's a paid tier. For $10 a month, you can have access to a book club that is run by myself that focuses on medieval and early modern literature. So if you've ever wanted to try out reading, say, Julian of Norwich, then um, you would have somebody to guide you and to ask questions with. And you can learn more about this at gracehammond.substack.com. I'd love to have you join us. I think it's going to be a really good time. Back to our regularly scheduled content. Today, I am welcoming Gina D'Alfonso. Gina D'Alfonso is the author of Dorothy and Jack, The Transforming Friendship of Dorothy L. Sayers and C.S. Lewis, and One by One, Welcoming the Singles in Your Church. She's also editor of The Gospel in Dickens. She's a writer and editor at Christ and Pop Culture and founder and editor of Dickens Blog. Her work has been published in The Atlantic, Christianity Today, Plow Quarterly, Fathom, and elsewhere. She enjoys playing the piano, gardening, and watching figure skating and classic movies. Welcome, Gina. I'm so excited to talk Dickens with you. Oh, I am too. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So as you may know, I ask everyone who comes on the show two questions. And um, the first is, and let's say for the sake of this conversation, you can't answer a Dickens book. The first oh, no. is, <laughs> what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago? Second to Dickens. <laughs> Oh, well, I was going to say A Tale of Two Cities, but since I can't, <laughs> um, I will go with uh, Gaudy Night by Dorothy L. Sayers. Uh, I, it's it's a longtime favorite ever since I uh, first read it in college. And it just it, it just made me uh, fall instantly for Sayers and her work. Um, that and The Man Born to be King, which I also read around the same time. So um, still two great favorites of mine today. But Gaudy Night just has everything. It has mystery, comedy, romance, uh, just everything you could want. It's set at Oxford. The setting is just wonderful, beautifully and, and lovingly described. And uh fantastic well-rounded characters great dialogue it's just everything you could want in a novel really oh that's great um I have a sad confession to make which is that I've only read Dorothy Sayers nonfiction, and oh. I really need to remedy that I really do well yes I can't recommend it highly enough okay awesome that is moving to the top of my queue at the library perfect Good. Good. always happy to um read something super highly recommended <laughs> um so then my second get to know you question for you 
is which literary character do you most identify with and why? Well, I'm going to have to go uh, right back where I just went and say Harriet Vane from <laughs> uh, Dorothy Sayers' novels. Um, to give you a little bit of background, she comes in. Gaudy Knight is actually the next to last of Sarah's mystery novels, not mm. counting the ones that, that were written by somebody else after her death. But uh, so Harriet comes in rather late in the series. I, I, I meant to say most of the novels can work pretty well as standalones, and which is why it's okay. I ended up reading the next to last one first. But uh, yeah, so Harriet comes in rather late. She's only in four of the novels and a few of the short stories. But I just identified with her almost the minute I first read about her. She has such a sense of humor and such honesty. And that in the book, actually, Lord Peter, her love interest, talks about how her honesty is the thing that he probably loves most about her. She's mm -hmm. honest with others and she's honest with herself, which is often a lot harder to be. And uh, ever since I've read that book, that's sort of been a, a, a touchstone for me, um, that idea of being honest with yourself and, and uh, being able to, I mean, not, not that she necessarily catches on to everything right away. Sometimes she's a little bit slow in picking up on things, but um but just that ability to be able to face things and tell yourself the truth about them and and to to uh to know your own strengths and your own weaknesses and your own flaws and all those things um that that uh that was important to me and and it has been ever since mm, I like that and I think that's a great honestly aspirational quality um because you're right it is it sometimes is much easier to be honest with other people than it is to be honest with yourself about your own inner motivations and inner thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, well, thanks. So on to Charles Dickens mm -hmm. and you founded the Dickens blog and also have edited a collection of his writings called the gospel and Dickens. And, um, I would love to know your thought process. Why Dickens? What does he do that is unique or important for us right now, 200 years after his death? And how does he speak powerfully to you specifically? Oh, I could go on all day about all that. <laughs> <laughs> you but could I break them up. <laughs> I will try not to. <laughs> well, um, to, to be as concrete as possible for a minute, uh, the reason for this particular book was I was aware that Plough had, my publisher, had this series called The Gospel and Great Writers, and they had done a number of books already, uh, compiled and edited by different people. Uh, they had, I think, Dostoevsky in there, and uh, they, they'd done a volume on Sayers. They, they'd done a bunch of different volumes. And I happened to meet up with some people from Plow at a conference. I think it was the Festival of Faith and Writing and got talking to them and, and um, got acquainted. And at some point I just said, how about a Dickens volume? And I would love to do it <laughs> because <laughs> I felt strongly that Dickens should be in there because he does have a Christian way of seeing the world. Um, 
That's not to say that he behaved Christianly all the time, because mm-hmm. nobody does, including the other writers in the series. Uh, that's that's not to say that he was a theological expert, because he wasn't. But he very much saw the world in terms of, and, and this is how I've divided up the book, into themes of sin, uh, repentance, grace, redemption, restoration, all those, all those great Christian themes. Uh, he, he really saw the world that way. And it's, it's all in there. If you read his novels, if you read his, his other writings too, some of his short pieces, his journalism and whatnot. Um, it's all in there. It's, it's very clear. Uh, you will get people arguing with you that, uh, no, he wasn't really Christian. He hated religious hypocrisy. He was more Unitarian. Uh, there, there's all kinds of takes on Dickens' religion. And it's true, he did hate religious hypocrisy, but it wasn't because he considered himself irreligious. It was right. because he, he was, he was basically, as we would put it today, trying to police his own side. He, he would put himself on the side of those who believed, but that made it all the, harder for him to see people saying they believed and acting as if they didn't. And it was very important to him to see people who claimed religion to be out there acting on it and feeding the poor and, and helping the needy and really putting, um, being practical, yeah. <laughs> I guess is the word yeah. I want about their faith, D- doing what it says to do in the New Testament and, and reaching out and helping other people. Uh, that to him was probably the most important aspect of faith. Yeah. And when he saw that not happening, he got angry. Um, and I think that after- that, that hypocrisy message is really, um, really helpful to us today, actually. I think that's like, you're you're right that um it's funny because you might interpret that as being uh anti-christian but in in actuality i mean jesus in the gospels spent a fair amount of time calling out hypocrisy uh amongst religious leaders of his day and what dickens uh does in say the character of um one of my favorites bleak house with uh chad band um is create this hypocritical, oily, smooth-tongued character um, who's just repellent. And it is really uh, holding up an unfortunate mirror to a lot of the Christianity of Dickens' day and to a lot of the Christianity of ours. Yes. You know, and and so I read that and I feel things haven't changed that much and that his role as as a prophet of calling out hypocrisy is pretty important still. It's very valuable. Yes. It, that's just one of the things that makes him so timeless and, and so important to still listen to because, um, in, in a lot of ways, things have stayed the same and, and, uh, his voice is matters just as much in that area as it ever did because, uh, uh, so much, so many of the things he called out still happen um i was there's a group read going on or there was of barnaby rudge recently um there's another website that i'll try to remember the name of (laughs) that's doing a dickens group read for um going on for like a couple of years but they just recently were reading barnaby rudge and and we found this quote again um 
from, from that book, that what we falsely call a religious cry is easily raised by men who have no religion and who in their daily practice set at naught the commonest principles of right and wrong, that it is begotten of intolerance and persecution, Hmm. that it is senseless, besotted, inveterate, and unmerciful, all history teaches us. And I mean, that's like right out of yesterday's news, perhaps. Yes, Uh, Yes. and that that awareness, uh, that deep awareness that, that religious language is a powerful tool to achieve things that aren't Christian in their ends, to, mm-hmm. to really for self-aggrandizement or for power mm-hmm. or for just feeling uh, influential. Um, I I mean, <laughs> it's pretty crystal clear, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, um, <laughs> and I was laughing because I was, I, well, I was uh, prepping for this conversation. I uh, saw that somebody had quoted George Orwell in one of the um, uh, blurbs for your book, and mm-hmm. uh, and it said that. And I, I went and read the essay, and it's a it's a really interesting, amusing essay. Yes. But uh, he said that Dickens was always preaching a sermon, and mm-hmm. um, that cracks me up honestly because I I think it's um, both something that can be a little bit uh, annoying at times in his, <laughs> in his writing, but also is um, really uh, heartfelt and appealing too, in a lot of ways. Um, and maybe we can stick a pin in that and go back to it in a minute. But mm-hmm. um, what I wanted to ask you is if you could talk a little bit more about uh, Dickens own background in regards mm-hmm. to Christianity. Yeah. Um, so he was brought up, Church of England, basically. Uh, he never really left that church. Uh, I, I mentioned a minute ago um, that a lot of people call him a Unitarian, which, yes and no, because he was interested in the Unitarians. He he uh, had friends who were Unitarian. He tried out the church, went there for a while, but he never actually left the Church of England. Uh, and he never actually left the basic beliefs of Christianity um, I mean, it, as far as the Trinity and, and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, again, he liked that practicality of the Unitarians mm-hmm. and the way the outreach that they did, the help that they gave. Uh, but he can't he can't be said really to have gone lock, stock and barrel <laughs> over to, to the whole yeah. organization. It was it was just a very deep interest that he had. But as, as far as his own beliefs, uh, they were pretty basic. He didn't really go in much for theological debates or disputes or controversies. Um, he was sort of impatient with all that because, again, he had that feeling that it sort of got in the way of being more practical about one's faith and, mm-hmm. and actually carrying out one's faith. But, you know, he had he he was grounded in the in the basics of Christianity and he never really got away from those. Yeah. Um again i'm i'm struck by another orwell quote in, mm. in thinking about his own motivation in writing these stories that are so formed by um a worldview that really cares about what um what a righteous life looks like or what a what um unrepented sin looks like i think those are two of the themes that you draw out in your collection and also that um that you can definitely think of as you think of his writing. And Orwell wrote, for you can only create if you care. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like that real deep anger and the the anger and the humor that are both in his like best writing are coming from that place of of deeply caring about the about what people are doing with their lives in a, in a world right. with poverty and with suffering right that's right yes that that quote is is wonderful because it's dickens in a nutshell basically he cared so much <laughs> he he um he was always I mean, it, it went into his writing. It overflowed into other parts of his life, too. He was always, you know, trying to write about something that that had upset him. He was always trying to raise money for something or other. He was always starting a new enterprise or or helping with some charitable outreach. It, it was just that there weren't any boundaries between in that sense between his personal life and his professional life. He was always trying to put something right. Um, he didn't always, sometimes he didn't go about it the best way. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes he messed up, but he, he, that caring, that, that true deep caring was there. And as you say, his anger, his humor, his passion, everything came out of that. So, um, another Orwell thing that I was struck by, and I had thought this before I had read this essay, but uh, sometimes you think something on your own and then you see someone who's like famous say it and you're like, yes, that is what I think too. Yes. But um, he was saying that uh, not one English writer writes better about childhood than Dickens. And um, I find that super interesting. And I had thought that before as I was going through the material, but it struck me um, first that there are arguably very few novels in which children are both compelling and central figures, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Let alone written, like, believably as children. Um, But then I started to wonder if this interest in children was pretty central, actually, to understanding Dickens' moral concern and sort of pastoral care for his society that he was in. And I um, I was just curious what you thought about that. What do you think about how Dickens writes children? Oh, it's absolutely central. And so much of that came out of his own childhood. Uh, the The story is famous now how his father had to go to debtor's prison and young Charles had to go to work for his living at a blacking factory, shoe blacking factory. And all told, I think he was only there between one and two years, but it left a really deep impression on him because, I mean, that was poverty. That was real poverty that he experienced, you know, a, a child having to earn his own living and his father being in prison for debt and having to, basically he had to live on his own. Most of the family went with the father to prison, but mm. uh, he, he had a little lodging of his own. And uh, How was old was he at that point, do you all? I'm trying to remember, um, and it slipped my mind. I want to say he would he would have been a preteen at that mm. point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may have to look this up because it has gone just out of my, <laughs> out of my head. Um, but so... He was 12. Yes. He was 12. Yeah. So, so living by and, himself. Right. And as we, as we know, London in those days, um, and, and of course, inner city poverty is still uh, uh, something Huge. that's very yeah. much with us. It, in those days, it was, 
even worse if you were a child on your own <laughs> and, yes. uh, and and struggling to survive. And th- those that experience left a mark on him that that's probably deeper than any other experience of his life. It stuck mm-hmm. with him so much uh, to, to the end of his life. He he put it into David Copperfield. Uh, he put it into an auto autobiographical fragment that was not published during his lifetime, but published later. Uh, And it just sort of leaks through and colors everything, really, when you look at it, which makes it all the more interesting that hardly anybody knew about it during his lifetime. Mm. He didn't talk about it much publicly. Uh, There was that thinly veiled experience in David Copperfield, but he, he didn't really go out and say, look, this happened to me. This is why I care so much. But it was in him. It was really deep within him. And it did color all his outward actions. And it, it gave him that drive to he remembered what it was like to be a vulnerable child. And he just basically wanted to save as many children from that experience as he possibly could. He, he didn't want others to, to suffer like he had suffered. Yeah. I mean, that's a, such a fascinating and uh, informing thing to keep in mind as you read. Like, I, I'm thinking of all of his lonely children, right? Um, he writes lonely children very often, and they're very compellingly written. Um, they believe things that children would believe um, about what's true in the world. So I'm thinking of Pip in Great Expectations, mm-hmm. all his fears, and then also um, Esther in Bleak House in in retrospective, and she's uh, saying to her doll, I was to no one on earth what Dolly was to me. Mm-hmm. And that sort of extreme loneliness and um, sadness and those and those are different than the, the David Copperfield, but it still has that reflection of, oh, yes. of lonely mm-hmm. childhood and kind of the real tragedy that that um that that is and it's really uh impactful as you read um yes and i think even worse than the poverty for him was a feeling of despair that he would never get the education he wanted he mm. he, he was a very bright child he loved books he loved learning and now that was taken from him so suddenly and i i think that that shock, the feeling of that shock that he never quite got over that, the, the, the despair of, uh, you know, I'm never going to be able to learn anything. I'm never going to have the career I want to have because I'm stuck here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that, uh, that was, I think, probably the worst part of the whole thing for him. And that, that too stayed with him and made him very interested in children's education and so forth. Um, he just, Again, he didn't want others to have to go through that. Now, um, what do you think distinguishes him at his best from other 19th century writers, from either earlier ones like Jane Austen or ones who are contemporaneous with him or even later like Trollope or Thackeray? Um what do you think sets him apart? Like as you, so you've spent so much time with him um, and have such a cultivated love for him. Yeah. Honestly, that question makes me feel a little bit guilty and I'll tell you why. Um, I have tried, you, you know, I, I always say, Oh, I love, you know, um, the literature of the 1800s. And, and I have tried very diligently to read like lots of, 
uh, trollop, lots of Thackeray, um, lots of um, some Elliot and so forth and so on, uh, some Gaskell. And every time it's just, I'm just like, this is not Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel very guilty about that because, you know, they are great writers. They are wonderful writers. And I should love them more than I do, but they just are not Dickens. <laughs> now, Austin, I will say, I do love. I I, I enjoy Austin very much. And so I, I think she, um, I I would probably class her above those others, still still below Dickens, but above all the, those others. Um, but why is that for you? Like, I what just, is that specifically that when you read it, you go, but it's not Dickens. Like, what do you oh, think you're responding to? Nobody, nobody has the fun with words. That mm. Nobody else <laughs> has that. Nobody. Else, and I know he, he can be very long winded, but he's 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 doing it for a reason because he loves words. He's having fun with words. People, people will tell you, Oh, he got paid by the word, which is not true. And I debunk it every time I hear it. But um, if, if you believe that, then you, you don't under, you don't get Dickens because you don't get that. He was doing that for fun. <laughs> he he, he yeah. didn't, you didn't have to pay him by the word. He would give you lots of words, no matter what, because he loved them. He loved playing with them. He loved coining them he loved seeing what he could do with them he loved being funny or or bringing in uh pathos um he just had so much fun and all the other writers trollop and and uh thackeray as wonderful as as they were they don't have quite that same thing and that's why i love him best and i will say um when I was in grad school and I took a course in uh, 19th century literature and we read like everybody, we read all those people, um, Dickens, Thackeray, Trollope, Elliot. I don't think we did Austin because we were going a little bit later than mm-hmm. that, but um, m- mostly like the latter half of the century. And the whole class, as I recall, voted unanimously that Dickens was the best. So I really? know I'm not alone in that. Now, that that's not universally true. I know there are others who prefer Elliot, who prefer maybe Hardy or... or um, oh, I cannot finish a Hardy people. novel. I, I, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I cannot finish a Hardy novel. I I've was tried. trying to be nice about Hardy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I have to apologize to some of my friends who hear this because I have friends who really love Hardy and I'm sorry. I just Ooh. don't. He drives me crazy. Oh, I just he, can't do it. He always stacks the deck against his characters. He always, always, it's like he hates them. It's like, like he hates them. It's like his, his novels are basically Murphy's Law in action. Everything yeah. that can go wrong will go wrong. And I can't stand it. And I want to throw the book. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The Obscure almost did Amen. me Amen. No, I'm a... Oh, yeah. uh, I'm a huge Trollope fan. He's mm-hmm. probably my favorite. I would mm-hmm. say he's not as like, um, like Dickens is far more moving, you know, but Dickens also airs sometimes too far on the other side where I get like, mm-hmm. he gets a little cheesy at times. Fundamental, um, yes, absolutely. And, uh, do that. <laughs> yes, which, you know, what I, what I respect <clears throat> about that is that it's the price that he's willing to pay for uh, hammering his, his, his concern and his story and his love of the character or, or whatever's going on home, you know, he's willing to take risks and to, uh, to push things to a point where you're like, Oh, wow. Um, 
that's, that's where old. sometimes the the cheesiness or the or the cringiness comes from. But it's actually coming out of a place I really respect, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah, that's very well put. But uh, I mean, this relates to my next question for you, which is, which I'm by the way, I'm really interested that your whole class like Dickens best. I find that really uh, fascinating. But I was about to ask you. Um, Dickens is polarizing and I feel like either people love him. Like I really enjoy Dickens um, or they just can't stand him. And they like struggled through the first few chapters of uh, tale of two cities or something. And then they were like, Nope. Um, So what do you say to charges um, about his sentimentality or his tendency to caricature? How, how do you, um, argue against that or what's your uh response to that uh well I don't know if I can put things better than you just did (laughs) but I'll try I was I was really struck by by uh, how well you said that uh but yeah it's true he he is sentimental and he is polarizing uh I I find it absolutely um I find it just fascinating that so many people have that same experience. You know, I read Great Expectations in high school. It's like a, almost a universal experience. Sometimes it's another novel. Most often it's Great Expectations. And it's such a polarizing experience. Like half of the people will say, I loved it. Half the people will say, I hated it. I was forced to read it. That's the formula you hear over and over again. Yes. And oh gosh, if, if I if I had one wish, I think I would make it so that everybody who has that Great Expectations high school experience would love it <laughs> because because when you have it and you love it it just oh it opens up so much in your life it as and that's what it did for me um mm. when I had it in ninth grade it just opened up this wonderful world of um of literature but of Dickens in particular and just stayed with me and has meant so much to me but yeah um you just have to get it in your head going in and and uh, I maybe school kids aren't always prepared enough for this but you have to get it in your head going in okay he's going to be wordy he's going to be passionate sometimes he's going to sort of slop over into sentimentality um I have to, I I mentioned earlier that A Tale of Two Cities is my favorite novel. I Mm -hmm. I love that novel so much. And even in there, I can put my finger on passages. There's this one passage where um, little Lucy uh, talks to Sidney Carton and asks him to help her parents. And I'm like, oh, Dickens, you could have made such a great thing out of that scene. And you just made it so sloppy, sentimental. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, know, opportunity lost. So, yeah, I see it. I get it. But uh, I still love him. You know, again, from the Orwell, sorry to be like obsessively quoting the Orwell. But Orwell's awesome. Go ahead. It's just a it's honestly was such an amusing essay to read. Um, mm-hmm. he, he takes example after example of this kind of phenomenon. And he, he calls it that, uh, Dickens imagination has overwhelmed him. Yes. <laughs> Which I find a hilarious way of stating that he's mm-hmm. just so invested and just goes for it. And then sometimes maybe could Santa draw it in a little bit, but, um, yeah. That, um, yeah, he could. I, I think, yeah, that that's that's um, a good phrase for it because I, I think he just couldn't help himself sometimes. Yeah. Just his imagination was colossal, colossal, <laughs> and and it ran away with him sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you draw attention to his wordiness as a source of delight. Um, that he's 
that's where he's just having fun. And, and what I really like about that is that, um, actually very few fiction writers that I can think, I think you see this more in poetry, even sometimes show their transparent delight in the, in the word on the page. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is something that Dickens does marvelously is that he's just sort of uh, exploding in joy over language mm-hmm. on yeah. the page. And, um, it, it does sometimes make for tedious reading, but it also makes for this, um, companionship and delight, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> um, you just re- reminded me of that little passage in a Christmas carol where he says, I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. And <laughs> for better or for worse, you, you do get that feeling with yeah, Dickens. I mean, he was, he was, he, was uh, he was being playful. But yeah, it's true. I mean, there's so much personality there that you can't help feeling sometimes that he really is standing in the spirit at your elbow. Yeah, I like that. Um, I like that a lot. So... Dickens is in this small and really interesting category of writers that um, almost everyone has an an impression of, at the very least, uh, or more so an opinion about. Mm -hmm. There's just not that many. Jane Austen is another one. Um, But other than those two, I think those are maybe the only two writers from the 19th century that are so kind of uh, interestingly shared. I mean, you, you brought up your example of reading great expectations in high school and that so many people have had an experience like that. Um, and, and I find that really interesting because he's in, in the culture, right. From like a Muppet Christmas Carol or whatever to, uh, to his actual books, he's in the culture in a way that you just don't see often. It's unusual. And, Um, do you, how do you think, so there's this like mythos almost around him. Do you think that's like in service to his reading or does it impede our reception of him? Uh, I think mostly it's in service of him. I think, I think it, um, yeah, for the most part, I, I think it, it helps. And you mentioned the Muppet Christmas Carol, which is just a perfect example. Uh, that movie is so loved. I love it too. And I think it did both Dickens and a Christmas Carol a world of good in this mm-hmm. culture because people, people talk about how, um, it's like the perfect adaptation. Uh, and it follows the book so closely, even with Muppets. And it's true uh, because they really they they lifted a lot of the the language straight out of the book that they're they're pretty faithful to the story. Uh, and they have Gonzo being Dickens and narrating, which is, you know, a touch of genius. <laughs> and the whole thing just makes people feel really warmly to the original book and to the author. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I think the whole thing was was inspired, really. And um yeah, I, I think people do get a sense from that and from other adaptations and, and so forth about Dickens being uh, just a master storyteller. Um, it, re- really good adaptations um, tend to do that. I, the, the, the adaptation of Bleak House um, from 
I forget which year, uh, but from several years ago mm-hmm. uh, with Jillian Anderson, uh, that really stuck positively in people's minds. I find people mm-hmm. really were into that. And uh, I need to Dorrit, watch it. Yeah. The, the little Dorrit adaptation um, with Claire Foy and Matthew McFadden, um, maybe to a lesser extent. I think Bleak House is a little bit more remembered now, but little Dorrit was was also very much loved. Um, I, I liked it a lot myself. And so, yeah, a, a good adaptation or or um things like that they they do they do sort of cement a positive image um on the other hand um yeah i think we're more aware now of writers as people and their characters and their foibles so it's there's a lot more knowledge now of um dickens failure in his marriage and um his his separation and everything and and so people do get very down on him for that which no wonder it was, yeah well it, did it he was, he yeah. uh, did he abuse his wife or was not it abuse no. not abuse no uh but he did fall in love with another woman and he That's did right. separate from his wife Catherine and uh spent the rest of his life not living with Ellen Turnin I don't think but but definitely being with her and uh yeah so he he does he is looked down on very much and, you know, no wonder <laughs> it, yes. was, it was one of his great failures. And, uh, 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 so yeah, he, he does there, there's a mix out there, you know? Uh, and I think, I think, um, you know, that's, it's good to be realistic. It's good to be, you know, aware of the bad, but it's also good to be aware of, of all the things that were good about him, about his storytelling and his life. And so, yeah, I mean, he was human. <laughs> like the yeah. rest of us, he did he did very good things and very bad things, just like most people. Well, and, and a lot of that is is not only the complexity of being human, but the complexity of reading um, historical literature in general is that mm-hmm. you are constantly navigating and negotiating how to... Um, love and appreciate a work that is of its time. And with Dickens, it's the same. Some, some of his portrayals of, of women are, um, you know, just kind of meh. Uh, (laughs) And, (laughs) um, but being able to contextualize him as a whole person and, and not uh, valorize him, as we sometimes do with our literary heroes or our historical figures. Um, but taking him as the imperfect package he is, is such an important task and a difficult mm-hmm. one. Yeah. 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 And, and two, I think when you're dealing with the writer and his, um, his body of work and all the, all that's been written and said about him and so forth, you, you find yourself going back and forth a little bit, like, um, you were just saying he has some kind of some pretty vapid women and he does. <laughs> There's no denying that. Um, but that some of the women in um, Martin Chuzzlewit, for instance, uh, drive me crazy. <laughs> not not uh, Mrs. Gant, but some of the like the heroine and so mm. forth. Um, but then you you start to look again and, and you find when you go back and read again, you're like, OK, but this woman is like really kind of amazing and that woman is really kind of unique and special and so and so like once you get that established like okay like 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 you sort of lower your expectations for yes. these women a little bit and then you start to find oh wow there's aunt betsy and there's mrs gamp and there's um some of the women in hard times and um 
when you look at Amy Dorrit, for instance, I mean, she has a lot of qualities that, I mean, she's not Elizabeth Bennett, but then Elizabeth Bennett never had to go out and, and work for her living and support an ungrateful family, which is, you know, you don't see a lot of that in 19th century literature, a woman working for her living and, and showing that kind of independence. So like sometimes when when you start looking again, it's like, okay, some of these women, yes, some of these women are vapid, but some of these women have qualities that are like maybe unsung, but that are actually really pretty special. That's right. Um, So you started to mention this, but I think one of the interesting things about asking people um, with a writer with such, uh, such influence, so many people know him. I love to hear the first time you read Dickens Mm -hmm. and you mentioned great expectations, ninth grade, Mm -hmm. but what did you think at the time as a ninth grader and you loved it, but what was your experience Mm, let me throw my mind back. I I should I should mention that like I was familiar with uh, the Mickey Mouse Christmas Carol before that, <laughs> that was that, before that that was my only experience of Dickens. Sure, sure. But, but but so I knew that story. a Christmas Carol okay. is probably everyone's first sort first of entrance to in Dickens. some form or other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Great Expectations that that's a really good question. I just remember. I had it in my in my uh, high school reading textbook, abridged, um, with pictures from the 1946 film adaptation. I still remember seeing those pictures. It, it's funny they were an in, they were sort of an integral part of the experience, hmm. um, which you know you don't always think of with Dickens. Well, I like the pictures, but I did like the pictures, and they sort of contributed. But yeah, I just remember being sucked in and pulled along. And thinking, wait, this is abridged. I gotta, I gotta get more of this. So later, <laughs> I went to the library and got the whole unabridged thing. But um, that's, I actually think, if if students are prepped properly, and I'm probably not one to talk about this. I'm not a teacher, and I don't know what the proper way would be. But I think if students uh, could be prepped a little bit for the experience, I think Great Expectations is actually a good first book to give them, because. It's in his, it's one of his later books. Mm. It's in a, like almost a tighter, more, a little bit more compressed style. Yes. Uh, he's, he's more focused. He's more driven. He's more, he's, the narrative is like carrying you along and he's not stopping to do like tons of tangents in every direction. For sure. Uh, and I, and he has, relatedly, he's like, I mean, those are some of his most kind of striking characters. I yes. mean, I, you know, who can forget, obviously, Miss Havisham. I mean, she's become basically a, a cultural icon in some sense, but Pip and, um, oh, I'm forgetting his, um, his, uh, family's names but uh joe gargery yes yes yeah and and mrs gargery um like (laughs) i mean you have this set of of characters who um leave this very strong uh visual impression so it's actually hilarious to hear you say that about the that the move that the movie stills were uh an integral part of that for you because that makes sense to me he's such a visual writer that's interesting. I had never quite put that together before, but you're you're absolutely right. There were pictures, but there were also images that he created with his words that were yes. very striking and iconic and stayed in the mind. I don't think I think there were things that went over my head at the time, but yes. but there were also these just vivid images in my head that stayed there. And um yeah, so that 
but when that happens, it really makes an impression that stays with you. Yeah. My first um, Dickens reading experience was that I, I had, uh, I loved L.M. Montgomery's um, Anne of Green Gables series and um, Anne in Anne of the Island was reading. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> Yes, no, because well, it was for some reason it was a very memorable scene to me. And I went, Oh, I should read Charles Dickens. And then I, I actually I was not that old. I was probably nine. And I tried to read Good Expectations and it was way over my head. It was yeah. not <laughs> not I good. Mean, yeah. So but uh so that was kind of a disaster. But I was Later, I was like determined. I was like, people talk about this guy all the time and I have to know what's going on. I have to know why they love him. Mm-hmm. And so at about 12, I think I tried A Tale of Two Cities and um, I just have this super vivid memory of we were on a family trip visiting some other, some extended family uh, in New Mexico. And I was at my great aunt's dining room table and everyone else had like gone on a hike or something. And I was just weeping copiously, <laughs> like at the table at 12, like crying over the ending. Yes. I um, do that to you. <laughs> and yeah. any listeners out there, I just, um, encourage you if you have read Dickens to think back to your first experience because it actually was um sweet for me to remember that sort of vivid visceral feeling of reading him for the first time that and I think it it's a fun little thought exercise so yeah yeah oh I it's so wonderful that you gave him another chance <laughs> so some people don't and I, I feel bad for them because they miss out on so much but yeah um I, I'm sorry I interrupted you just then but when you said oh, no. Anne of the Island I just knew that, <laughs> that, that um that that just the way Montgomery puts it she was treating herself to Dickens I know I and she was eating too. like cake and it all sounded so decadent and delightful yeah. and I was like I have to try this guy yeah <laughs> I, I think uh yeah it, it's it's really interesting the effect that another a different writer can have on you by saying but just by the way they they write about a writer. Yes. <laughs> and that is like one of my favorite examples. Um, if you if you love a writer and you see them be like, being like, oh, this writer is just like such a treat, then you're like, oh, hmm, I got to I got to see about that. Yes, absolutely. And that was how I read Dickens and why I didn't give up the first time, because I still had this firm belief that if it was as good as Anne Shirley herself was saying it was, then it had to be good. And I it mm-hmm. had to be that I wasn't ready. So <laughs> that sure was very wise of you <laughs> as a child. I mean, that's incredibly wise. Um, well, um, I would like to ask you, uh, who is your favorite character from his novels and why just as a super fan, I'd love to hear. Oh, well, I mean, I have to go with Sidney Carton. I mean, he's, yeah, he's just so special. And, um, he is, it's just so, so masterful the way Dickens brings him in and carries him through the book and then just brings him out in this heroic light at the end. I mean, how many books can you think of? There must be some, but how many can you think of where the hero is, has just this, um, such a lack of presence at the yes, beginning. Yes. Um, he's just so, what's the word, unprepossessing. Mm. He just sort of like slips into this novel 
casually and um is just you're, you're like oh like uh, Jerry Cruncher when he first sees him he's like oh he's not anything important mm. and um and then he starts to um he starts to you start to see more of him and you're like oh that guy is really interesting he like there's uh, this is a this is an area where Dickens actually exercises restraint mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. if he can be powerful when he's wordy he can be even more powerful when he's being restrained it's incredible how powerful um, because he just leaks a little bit at a time of this character. And you're like, oh, there's so much depth here. There's so much, like, so much has gone wrong with this man. He He's an alcoholic. Um, his career has, you know, gone south. He's he's kind of a mess, but, you know, wow, he, he's, he's interesting. He can be funny. He's got, like, this great depth of feeling in him. And then, you know, we, we have, we spend long periods of time away from him. Then he comes back, then we're away from him again. And then he's just going to step in and just do these amazing things that just like turn everything around. I mean, uh, I mean, there's just, you know, you have Sydney, I mean, you basically have him undergoing something, something of a conversion experience Yes. at the climax. And I mean, it's, <laughs> it's nothing like the kind of con- conversion experience you might see in a modern christian novel but my gosh it's so powerful mm-hmm. and so real and um that there's something about that character that just exemplifies what faith can do in a person's life and without anything preachy about it i mean we know yes. that it can be preachy but it, it's just so uh, so interesting that here when he's really getting deep into what faith does to a person, he's not being preachy at all. He's just, you know, sort of hanging back, being restrained, uh, letting this man's story unfold. And it's just so it, like you were saying it, it's so visceral. And mm-hmm. when you see what a great person becomes, it just hits you so hard. Yes. So, yeah. Totally. Got to go with Sydney. <laughs> got to go with Sydney Carton. I love that. Yeah. So, all right. For those who just have not been able to get through a Dickens novel, do you have tips for them or books that you recommend they start with or um, ways to get into it? Well, I think I, I have heard people say that the serial experience is really helpful. Hmm. Um, and you know that nearly all of his books were originally published serially. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd come out a chapter or two chapters at a time. Right. Which was a very popular mode of publishing in the 19th century. So many very well-known books that we now only think of as a novel in a, you know, thick tome were serial. And that's a great, yeah, sorry, keep talking about that, but. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. You're right. Because yeah, I, I've, th- there are a lot of places now, um, or a lot of people who are sort of trying to recreate that experience now. Um, you, sometimes you can get an email newsletter where they send you a chapter or two a week in your inbox and uh, you read it and you wait for the next installment. I mentioned that one group that's doing a a group read um, and I will give you the URL because people need to know about this site. It's not run by me. It's run by a friend of mine, but um, it's called it's reninkpaper.com. Ren as W R E N like the bird. And the site is called all the Dickensian year round. 
And um, that group read they're doing, it's not exactly a chapter at a time, but it's like several chapters at a time. And people are following along and commenting and tweeting and so forth. And I think it's helping people to get into the books. Um, like I said, they just finished Barnaby Rudge. So um, so they've been through like, I guess it's like five, five, six. They're still fairly early in the experiment. But um, yeah, it just, that seems to make a difference for people. When you take a little bite-sized chunk, so to speak, uh, you read it, you give your yourself a little time to absorb it, and you wait for the next installment. That seems to help people. Uh, so I would recommend trying to read him that way, just little bits at a time. Mm. And then I think before you know it, he will pull you in. <laughs> that that's That's what he does to you if you get to that point when you start really enjoying him. Uh, he he pulls you in and then you're a goner and you just swept away. Um, and yeah, so that's that's one way to do it. And another way or, or another tip to remember is just what I said before that um, know going in that he's wordy <laughs> and that yes. he's a Victorian and he thinks and writes and speaks like a Victorian. And that's what they did. And so it's going to feel a little bit different, but just just know that. And keep that in mind. And I think it will help because you can't go in thinking like, oh, I'm going to read a modern novel because it's not like that. And and I'm not saying anything against modern novels. I love a lot of them. There's There are great ones out there, but it's just different, different time period, different writing style, different uh, focus and so forth. So um, just keep that awareness in your mind. And um, I think it helps. That's great. That's, um, I think, really helpful. And I hope that any folks who have, <laughs> I bet they abandoned ship long ago in this episode since it was all Dickens all the time. But if you're still hanging in and you haven't read a Dickens, this sounds like a good way to try. Or if you've only read one and we're kind of meh. Mm -hmm. um, last question for you is, where can folks find you online if they're interested in finding out more about what you're up to and following along? Sure. Um, well, as I, as you said, I have a Dickens blog <laughs> and it's just called dickensblog.typepad.com. And um, I update it, I guess, maybe a few times a month now. <laughs> I try to keep up with it. Um, there, there really is um, a lot of interesting news that comes along, you know, about adaptations um, by the way, I saw that there's a new, when I looked at your Dickens blog, like mm -hmm. in advance of this, saw that there was a new Christmas Carol adaptation coming out. And I was like, oh my gosh, with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds and Octavia Spencer, it sounds super fun. There is. It's called Spirited. And I think it's out in November or thereabouts. Go to the blog and get the details. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there's always, there's always news about new adaptations, um, or new retellings uh, modern novelists do a lot of Dickens retellings, which are interesting or just new, new stuff going on at the Dickens museum, just all kinds of interesting little tidbits that I keep people up to date on. And uh, we have a nice following and, and a little Facebook group that goes with the blog and, and we have fun. And then um, I have a Substack, uh, which is a book review newsletter that goes out biweekly and it's called Dear Strange Things, which is from a quote by Dorothy Parker, who's another great favorite of mine. And it's just dearstrangethings.substack.com. And so every two weeks, you get a book review or two in your inbox. So, um, yeah, so that's been keeping me busy. Very cool. 
Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just nerding out with me on Dickens. That was so fun. Um, (laughs) Great. Always to hear. I just love uh, chatting with people about the authors they love. And that was Mm -hmm. really a delight to hear that from you. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and I'd love to hear your questions or comments or thoughts about Charles Dickens on social media. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD or on Instagram at Old Books with Grace. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Don't forget about the Substack Book Club if you're interested. Medievalish with Grace Hammond, gracehammond.substack.com. And um, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or review on the podcasting platform of your choice. That helps me out a lot. It helps other folks find the podcast. And um, I really am thankful for when you do. So thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.